Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. He's best known as the longtime Asia editor of Time International and previously as a senior editor for Time Asia. Now retired, Zohair Abdul Karim has interviewed many of Asia's leaders over the years, including Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, South Korean President Moon Jae-in, and Malaysian Prime Minister back again at the age of 93, Mahathir Mohamad. As an editor, Zohar has also spent years training and nurturing other journalists. His family roots go back to 1885 in Hong Kong, when an ancestor came to do business here. And that family firm lasted until the 1980s. Zohar grew up in North Point, later moving to Happy Valley as a kid, where his lifelong love of horse racing was nurtured. He's a journalist journalist and has no truck with clickbait. A journalist's job is to find out the truth, somewhat of a challenge in today's media environment. Zohar Abdul Karim also feels that in Hong Kong's bid to be Chinese, it's forgetting its own diversity. My earliest memories are we lived in two places on King's Road in North Point, which is actually an immigrant community, a Chinese immigrant community of a lot of Fuknese people there. And you still see remnants of that, clan associations, as you walk along King's Road. I have memories of growing up above a pet shop on King's Road, and either our first or probably our second residence on King's Road is now the big HSBC centre opposite the old State Theatre across the road. So quite close to the Fortress Hill MTR station. But our family goes back longer than that. Longer, than, I was the first to be born in Hong Kong, but my great-grandfather came to Hong Kong from Gujarat State in India in 1885. There have been South Asian minorities that have come earlier than that in the 1860s, but we would be one of the earlier families. And we certainly predate a lot of ethnic Chinese immigrants particularly from the mainland, who came in the 1930s and then after the, oh, after yeah. the war. They're newbies in comparison to your family. Uh, uh, yes, they're actually <laughs> Latter-day immigrants as far as I'm concerned. In 1885, when your great-grandfather comes to Hong Kong, that was in trade? Yes, he and a, a couple of friends. I mean, he would, he would only have been in his early 20s at that time. Unfortunately, we don't have sufficient family records. He's buried back in India, and in the end, he did not stay for the rest of his life here. But he came, uh, he and his friends first went to Aden, which was also under British rule, as was the Indian subcontinent. Uh, they didn't like it there. They went back to India, and then he heard about Hong Kong. I don't know how. Uh, came out here by himself and said to himself, this is a place where we can, we can start a business. It was a textile business. And then he told his partners, come along and let's, let's do something in Hong Kong. I'm glad he did. If he had not done that, my life and that of my father and you know, my own son and, and my siblings uh, would have been very, very different. Because the India of then is not the India of now. I and mean, People look at India as a land of opportunity now, but it wasn't then. People just trying to get out. And it just gave us a much wider perspective than if we had just been raised in India, frankly. We were in Hong Kong. We were in a city that was fairly international in the sense that obviously the vast, vast majority are ethnic Chinese, uh, but you have uh, Westerners, you have uh, uh, other Asians, you have this fortuitous sort of geographical position at that time uh, on the edge of China, uh, very strong kind of China connections, riding the modernization and rise of mainland China. Uh, so it was a much more exciting place. And eventually I was able to go to the United States for my higher education. And my career with an international American company was most rewarding. And I think all of that would not have happened 
if that first step was not taken by someone whom I don't know very well. I think we have one photograph of him, of a step that he took in his early 20s. It would have taken a lot of courage, I think, emotional courage to have, to have made that leap. Yeah, enormous. And uh, also, you know, just uh, the transport, the lack of communications at, at that time. So it was your parents or your father who first came here? So what would happen is that I, I think my great-grandfather went back, then his son, my grandfather, came out here for a short period of time. But it was my father who made a decision to permanently move here. They would commute, so to speak. I think there was always a sense that you go back to the old country. And it was my father who made the step in 1957, the year that I was born, to actually come here permanently. Uh, he had earlier gone to school in Hong Kong. He went to St. Joseph's College, a very establishment school in Hong Kong. And I went to St. Joseph's College. That's how it was in, in those days. Brother Martin, who taught my father, and we have family photographs of Brother Martin and my father at the age of 12, uh, was the primary school headmaster when I entered and that's how I got in. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got in, frankly, because it was the old boys' network. And did, uh, he, did he say, oh, you're his son? Yes, oh, absolutely. My father took me in. <laughs> and, and he said, don't worry, don't worry. I will take care of your boy. That's the way, the way it was. And a, a lot of the old establishment people in Hong Kong, and I'm talking about Hong Kong Chinese, also have that St. Joseph's connection. When you were at St. Joseph's, what kind of subjects did you like as a schoolboy? I mean, you know, sport or, um, and in terms of uh, academic subjects? St. Joseph's was part of the Christian Brothers uh, network of schools in Hong Kong, and St. Joseph's was considered the more sort of academic institution. They have an excellent school in uh, uh, Kalantong, La Salle, which was, cons- which was more s- uh, sporty, if you like. So it was, very, it was very, very academic, and at the time it was, it was also quite mixed. Chinese was offered as a second language, and Chinese literature and history, and French and Portuguese and all those were offered as second languages. And at that time... So we simply could not conceive of the rise of China as it is today. And so the Chinese language was not taken seriously. Hong Kong Chinese students weren't taking Chinese. My fellow students were not taking Chinese because they found it too difficult. They took French. Because French was very simple. If you wanted the good grade, all you had to do was memorize the conjugation and that was it. So I think there was a lack of understanding, appreciation, and that's not surprising. It's understandable that we did not think that Chinese or Chinese language, history, literature was, was important. If we had known it, I would have taken it. I took French, and French did come in useful to me at one stage in my journalistic career. But on the whole, if I had to do it again, I would have done Chinese. So my son is fluent in spoken and written Chinese, Mandarin, both traditional and uh, modern characters. And we see that because my wife and I saw that as something that was important for him going forward. He's not in Hong Kong right now. He's doing uh, graduate studies in the United States. But if he ever came back, then both Hong Kong and mainland China would be open to him career-wise. When did you decide to become a journalist? Was that immediate or did you do other jobs before? Uh, no, I, I sort of fell into it. I fell into it because it seemed, it seemed an easy thing to do. I went to the United States to study biology. I hardly lasted a week at that. Uh, started taking political science courses at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Did the minimum I could to graduate in journalism. <laughs> Came back to Hong Kong and I was lucky to get a job. I've been lucky in my career. From the year 2002, I was with Time Proper and um, it was a good career. But a lot of it was, I graduated with a, with a degree in journalism, but most of it really was, as you would expect, uh, learning on the job. But uh, you've done an enormous amount of travel with that. Yes, a lot, a lot of travel was stationed in Indonesia, Malaysia, a fair bit of reporting. But most of my 
role was as an editor. I, I travelled vicariously through <laughs> through the, 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 the superb reporters and correspondents of Time. A wonderful relationship. Many of them either are still at Time or have gone on to excellent jobs at the New York Times or Washington Post, uh, doing very well. Now, what sort of role would you say, you know, as as Asia editor of Time for a number of years? What would what would you say is Time's role? In, in terms of its its readership and in terms of its type of subjects that it chooses, it's changing very fast. So even even the six months that I've been away, uh, there have been further changes. In fact, the the entire company has been sold to a Midwestern publishing company, which is profitable and very well managed. But it's a smaller company that swallowed a bigger one, and there are changes that are still going on. I think Time, at its best, was able to set the agenda, frame the debate at its best. But we're, we're talking about a number of years ago. In recent years, time has faced the same challenges that uh, big legacy media have faced, how to adjust to the digital age, the social media age, and in which, and an age of journalism now, in which there is no longer an absolute value to truth. You know, what is truth? when you have White House officials talking about alternative facts and uh, you have something that can be denied or ignored or just blankly stated as, as falsehoods, there is so much pushback on truth that it has really become very difficult to practice journalism. And the cycle of journalism has become so fast and furious that nothing really lasts uh, for example, you know, the big event in Asia this year was the, the Kim-Trump summit in Singapore. And now we wonder about the lasting effect of that. Much of what happened is already forgotten and buried under this relentless barrage of information, misinformation, disinformation. Uh, you just can't keep up. So this is, this is what I feel is the greatest challenge facing journalism and those who take it seriously is that this lack of an absolute value now that is placed on truth. Now, growing up during my nearly 40 years without a break in journalism, this wasn't an issue when I was making that journey. Who did you start out with? I started out with Asia Week, which eventually Time Incorporated acquired an ever greater share and in the end fully bought it up. Asia shut down after going through those same challenges, shut down at the end of 2001, and I transferred to time after that. And, you know, these things go in cycles. Nobody is immune. Everyone is vulnerable. And time faces the same challenges that Asia Week did and a lot of other media do, and some media adapt better and some media don't. I think the key for established media is to not forget the core function, and the core function is journalism. And if you believe in that and invest in that that is your business, then you can make it work. If you're thinking, oh, maybe we should be doing a whole bunch of other things, maybe we should be pursuing stories simply so that we can get traffic. We should be pursuing stories because we think these are our demographics or these are the demographics that we would like to have because the, a lot of these tactics or strategies are short-term. If your business is journalism, then you should stick to that. I think a publication that has obviously had its own, or a title that has had its own roller coaster ride, but in the end has stuck to that core principle is the New York Times. And I think we're seeing it that they've got uh, healthy print, they've got healthy digital, they've got a lot of cross-pollination, 
and they're not sacrificing the journalism. They're doing short stories, quick stories, podcasts, digital pieces, but they're also doing the stuff that you think the New York Times has always done. Going back to where you were born in 1957 in North Point, uh, you mentioned that uh, you lived what is now in an HSBC building but was opposite the State Theatre. Now, you're born at a time when Harry O'Dell who ran the State Theatre, was just selling it off. It would have been the Empire Theatre and then the State Theatre. Do you recall, living opposite there, that there was, uh, you know, concerts, people going in and out? Yes, but we would go there mainly for Sunday matinee cartoons. My father would take us there for Sunday matinee cartoons because of cash flow issues at that time, not anymore, but at that time, uh, recreational sort of options were limited and cartoons was the big thing. What sort of cartoons? I guess it was, I don't know, Mickey Mouse. I don't know if the Bugs Bunny was around at that time. You know, cartoons and ice cream, uh, I guess, during the summer. That was it. And then for us, a socioeconomic breakthrough was moving from North Point to Happy Valley. Uh, and then we lived in uh, two homes in Happy Valley, one at the, at, on the valley floor, which was the first one, uh, f- uh, for about maybe five years, and then we moved uh, higher up <laughs> the hill in Happy Valley, and that was, I think, our longest stay at one particular place. That flat is still around in a low-rise in Upper Happy Valley. Wow. Yes. That's a long and, stay. And actually, uh, uh, f- uh, friends of ours, friends of mine from time, uh, now live there, <laughs> now rent it. Just one more quick question with the cartoons and state theatre. When you So when you were watching, was that so you were sitting in theatre seats looking down on this stage with a big screen? I think it was at state theatre, but also there was another cinema. Was it Roxy, which is where... Roxy or Hoover, one of those, which is where there's a Regal Hotel in Causeway Bay next to Pennington Street. And that was a cinema, and that... I think we went there more often, and it was just a regular cinema. Moving to Happy Valley, did that uh, spark your later love of horse racing? Yes, actually. Actually, it did, because there were fewer buildings around the Happy Valley circuit. So I was able to actually see it from our flat. Racing there was only at Happy Valley at that time. There was no Shotton. I love the sport. I love the animals. I don't gamble at all. And now I actually have investments in, in racehorses in Australia. With growing up, um, you said you went to St. Joseph College, which, of course, would have been a Catholic college. Are both your parents from Gujarat originally? Yes, from Gujarat. Yes. They belong to families that knew each other. They came from a relatively small town, small by Indian standards, in Gujarat, Cambay, which used to be a very vital port, maybe up till the 19th century, uh, eventually faded and when my mother came out in 1957 and I was born here in St. Paul's Hospital, that would have been the first time that she would have left India. And when she came here, she didn't, obviously she did not know uh, Cantonese or even English, and she's self-taught in Cantonese and self-taught in English. She still lives in another apartment overlooking Happy Valley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so with your folks, you say that uh, you, you start off in, in North Point, then when there's a little bit more money in the family, you move to Happy Valley. So what were your parents' jobs? My father just stayed with the family business that was established in 1885. And what was it called? It was called Kaimali Limited, named after one of the partner's fathers. And it was a viable business till about the 1960s. It got into retail. We had a retail, a smaller one than a bigger one in downtown's central district where the Marks and Spencers, that lot, 
was where we were for quite a number of years. What, selling textiles or clothes? Or? Uh, uh, textiles, then into, into ready-to-wear clothes and so on and so forth. And it was good until the 1960s, uh, then the industry changed. Also, the business grew to the point where a lot of family members started coming in, and that made it unwieldy at a time when, for us, the business was fading. So my father was involved in that. Eventually, all the partners just made a decision, uh, came to a consensus. It wasn't until the 1980s, frankly, there was a decision to uh, wrap everything up. My mother was a homemaker all along. And uh, growing up, uh, what, what of, uh, would you say of uh, Gujarat traditions, cooking, and these aspects, uh, did you have at home, or did you grow up preferring wonton noodles? Both. Both. There are a lot of Gujaratis in Hong Kong, but again, the, the South Asian community or the Indian community is not a monolithic community in Hong Kong. You've got Gujaratis, but you've got Sindhis, you've got other, other people, you've got Punjabis and, and, and so on and so forth, and they're divided by, or fragmented really, by ethnicity, uh, religion, class, and length of stay in Hong Kong. There's, I believe, not much interaction between those who came decades ago and those who have been coming for work or as refugees to Hong Kong, because Hong Kong does have a lot of South Asian refugees. There's also been a change in the professional complexion of South Asian minorities in Hong Kong. So before, a lot of them in business, but as with the case of my own family, as people became better educated, went overseas, and then opted for, let's say, professional jobs. So you have a lot of now new, perhaps not so much immigrants, but new South Asian expatriates coming to Hong Kong. A lot of them are in, in technology, in tech, in finance, and they're only here short term, uh, like the old Western expats. So I think there is a sense sometimes in Hong Kong among the majority Hong Kong Chinese, and of course they are the overwhelming majority, to look at the minorities, especially the South Asian minorities, as some monolithic group, and, and they're not. I think there's a lack of awareness First thing, that they go back such a long ways. I mean, when, when you think about Modi and Chater came in the 1860s, Ratanjis came in the 1880s, and the part that they have played in helping establish Hong Kong, you know, uh, Hong Kong University was started with a huge donation at that time by one of the Modi family members. Chater was involved with Victoria Harbour Reclamation, uh, Hong Kong Land, Dairy Farm, even the, the modern Hong Kong Electric. We identify Hong Kong Electric with Lee Kai well, if there was no Paul Chater of Indian Armenian descent coming out from India, from Mumbai, I believe it was, then maybe all that would not have happened. So I think there's a lack of awareness uh, that the minorities here are not many, but they're an integral part of the patchwork of Hong Kong. They're not something that is added on. So if you have a patchwork quilt, they, they are one segment that is part of the fabric woven in and I think there is a lack of awareness of that. And there's a lack of awareness of the socio-economic, ethnic diversity of the ethnic minorities here. I always look at Hong Kong as being uniquely placed to be both Chinese and international. And possibly the only place in the world that could be like that. And I think that that ambition... Uh, if it was ever an ambition for the city, it's no longer that important or there as Hong Kong tries to reintegrate into China. The emphasis after 1997 has been, it's almost been as, there's been pressure on Hong Kong 
on the government, on the people, on society to prove its Chineseness. And when you do that, it's almost like a, a zero-sum game. That、uh, it's become like a zero-sum game. That you, if you stress that, you're going to de-emphasize what is non-Chinese about. Uh, Hong Kong, even though it is such an integral part of Hong Kong, this is, I think, unfortunate because I think Hong Kong is in that rare position. I was in a, participating in a、uh, in an Asia Society panel discussion with both public and private sector people just a few weeks ago on promoting STEM and、uh, science, innovation, technology in Hong Kong because Hong Kong has been behind a lot of places and particularly behind the mainland on that. And one of the one of the issues that came up is that if you do not encourage diversity in Hong Kong, then you're not going to be able to do that because you're not going to be able to get people to come to Hong Kong. There are other factors: the high cost of living, whether spouses or other family members can get good jobs in Hong Kong too. Education, whether you can get good education in Hong Kong for these people that you want to bring in. But if you want to encourage those those industries, then you're going to have to bring in people from outside, and then you you're going to have to have a mindset that says diversity. There's just too much, too much still, casual prejudice against minorities in Hong Kong. It, it happens on a daily basis. You know, my family goes back to 1885. It happens to me.、Mm-hmm. Casual prejudice.、Uh, you know, in terms of legal discrimination, you do have laws that prevent legal discrimination. You you have that. But I'm talking about、uh, casual prejudice and racism on a daily basis.、It、happens all the time, and it's、uh, it's unfortunate and it's、uh, it's disappointing and demoralizing. And I see more of that now because now that I'm retired. Before, when I was working, my office is very diverse. The sort of the professional arena that you move around is pretty diverse, whether in Hong Kong or overseas. People see you first as as a professional you are. I actually don't have much connection with India except for that ethnic con-、uh, connection. We have fewer and fewer relatives who live in India proper. But I would go to India very often. In my capacity as Asia editor of Time, whether it's to interview Prime Minister Modi or over the years, whatever, and the thing is that they don't. When I go there, they actually don't look at me as an Indian. They look at me as as the professional I am first. Even in government, I remember meeting one of the junior ministers, and he actually thought I was American. So there were no assumptions in this case. I think in Hong Kong, there's still too many assumptions. Ethnic minorities,、uh, particularly South Asian minorities, may not necessarily be professional, may not be very well off, may not be very well educated, and so on and so forth. Yes, do we have people like that? Absolutely. But do we have people who are not like that? Absolutely. So the funny thing is that I was at the Fusion supermarket just a few weeks ago, which is right right in Taiku Place, which I know very well because because I used to work in that area. And I went up to the counter. I don't know what I was buying. I forget. I think it was some juice or something like that. And I went up to the counter and I spoke to the cashier in Cantonese. And she, I did not expect her to to know better, but she actually said to me. She looked at me. She said, she used a Cantonese expression that says, "Oh, you are Hong Kong born and raised. You're a Hong Kong person." And I was like so pleased that she got it right away. And yet I have been in so-called well-traveled, well-educated Hong Kong Chinese circles where they are. Clueless, and not only clueless, but deal in stereotypes. So it's not an education thing; it's just an awareness thing, and I think an empathy thing, and a willingness, and an ability to be open. Your work as an editor over decades has resulted in many correspondents that we have these days, or China editors、uh, in other publications. So you were involved in the training and nurturing of these journalists. But in terms of your own interviews that you've done out in the field, you've talked any number of times to a man who's、uh, recently sort of rise of the phoenix. He's come back, and that's、uh, Mahathir Mohamad, who's back as Prime Minister of Malaysia. Yes, I first. 
first interviewed Mahathir in 1982 or 83, uh, probably 83, when he had just become prime minister. He was he was education minister. Education is one of the sort of routes that you take, is the portfolio you got to have because it's a very important portfolio in Malaysia. So it has just become. And at that time, he was shaking up Malaysia. He and his deputy, Musa Hitam, they used to call him the two M's. He brought in sort of cosmetic changes. Like, for example, he would wear a tag, a name tag, uh, that said Mahathir, and everybody thought, my goodness, he's prime minister in a very sort of hierarchical society. And, you know, you can almost call him by his name. And he was shaking up Malaysia, and he brought in brought a lot of changes to sort of wake up Malaysia to think about uh, looking at Japan as a model to get away from a resource uh, exploitation economy, to do manufacturing, and so on and so forth. And there were no sort of sacred cows for him, so to speak. He would take on established institutions. He took on royalty. And I think for a lot of foreign journalists, many of who are liberal, including myself, I thought, well, this is good. He's rocking the establishment. Of course, what happened is that eventually, over time, he concentrated most of that power onto himself and to the office of the prime ministership. So when he left office, he was a very, very powerful and actually authoritarian prime minister. He's now come back. I saw him last about a couple of years ago. I was in KL for a World Economic Forum session, and I decided to look him up. He did not remember me, even though we had, we had met four times previously, and a lot of them were, were long interviews. And it was clear to me that he had mellowed out a lot. This was before he decided to spearhead the new alliance, and now, of course, he's back. And do I believe that he has changed, that he has mellowed, that he's actually really thinking of rolling? Uh, because a lot of things that happen in Malaysia now, the, the corruption, the concentration of power, dates back to his time. And I asked him about that. And he has now come up with public statements saying he got some things wrong, that he would like to see things change. And, of course, you know, the, the jailing of Anwar was something that he initiated. Now Anwar is apparently his heir apparent again. So is it possible for someone so late in life to change? It's possible. And, and we'll see what happens in coming months. So far, he seems to have done all the right things. He's resurrected the investigation to 1MDB. I saw him become over the years more authoritarian. Uh, when I was interviewing him in the 1980s and 1990s. But he is a guy who demands and deserves respect. Just what he's done at his age, his physical capacity, his mental capacity, uh, it's, it's kind of astonishing, really. So he's, he's quite a character. And we've had many of those. We've had many of those. You know, Prime Minister Modi in India is a character, certainly. My last big interview with Time before leaving was with Moon Jae-in just on the eve of his election as president of South Korea. And I'm not surprised by any of the things that he has done. We put him on the cover, on an Asian cover, on a, on a Korea-Japan cover, in which I called him the negotiator. And, of course, that's, that's what he is. And I was very impressed by him. He does want peace with North Korea. He no longer wants that threat of war over his side of the peninsula. And a lot of the de-escalation that has happened with North Korea on the diplomatic front is really due to him. It's not due to Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump went in for his photo op in Singapore, but really the groundwork was laid by Moon, and he's the one who's going to have to keep it up. The Americans are, are there or they're not there. It's the South Koreans who, who have to live with that threat of, of war. I was impressed by Moon Jae-in. My thanks to Zohair Abdul Karim, former Asia editor of Time International and a St. Joseph's College schoolboy. Next week, I join longtime Nepalese friend Sushmarana, the daughter of a retired Gurkha major, as we head around the Nepalese provision stores in Jordan. My mum kept her spices really simple. It was just cumin and coriander and turmeric. 
and salt. But the basic curry, the basic gravy would include ginger garlic paste, tomato and onion. And we didn't go, f- we didn't, we don't use chili because, you know, my, my dad, my dad doesn't like chili. He doesn't like spicy food. So we just kept it simple. My God, and it was amazing. And later in the programme, I joined lifestyle presenter Sadia Usmani at the cooked food market in Hung Ham. Welcome, Anne-Marie. We're actually standing at the bottom floor at the moment, which is all seafood. And at the back of this place, they have lots of florists. They've got vegetable shops, fruit shops, things like that. Now, the actual cooked food centres generally are on the top floor of these markets. And I was doing a little bit of research and... uh, it seems like, you know, there's probably just over a hundred of these markets across Hong Kong. And from that, about 60 to 70 of them actually have these cooked food centres, usually on the third floor. And what happened is, I think, in the 1960s, the government, it was the original Dai Pai Dong, the government actually wanted to get rid of congestion, they wanted to bring sanitation in. So they offered them kind of places in these markets. So the third floor, it tends to open from about 8 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock in the night. Sadia Usmani there. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.